0: If you could get your um, pew Bible, it's on page uh, 352, otherwise you can open up your your own Bible if you brought it along. Esther chapter 9, verses 20 through 28, and then Esther chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as a day of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, He issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants And all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor the memory of them die out among their descendants. Let's move to chapter 10. Verses one through three. King Xerxes Xerxes, imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the jews this is the word of the lord
1: Thanks be to God. Thanks, john. <coughs> we heard john read from chapters 9 and 10 in many ways are Um, not only the conclusion of the story of the book of Esther, but also kind of giving us the context for how Esther has turned into an annual celebration among the Jewish people known as Purim. Many of you may have been familiar with that celebration, but if not, this is the the context of why that continues to be celebrated and and what is involved uh, with that celebration outlined for us in these chapters. What's also interesting to notice as we end the book is that many retellings of the story of Esther conclude with Haman's comeuppance. Even the end of this book is framed in such a way to imply that Mordecai and Esther lived happily ever after. But what I want to suggest to us this morning as we close out this sermon series is that if we read the narrative as it's given to us in our Bibles a little more closely, we'll discover that there's an underlying tension, unresolved, hidden in the story. To appreciate the subtlety of this tension this morning, we're going to actually have to hit rewind and go back to where we left this story at the end of last Sunday. Actually, we have to go back a little further than that to catch some of the subtleties that we might have missed last time around. So let's return to the moment in the story, if, you, if you've read this before, let me set the stage for you, when Esther finally provides full disclosure to King Xerxes that she and her people are living under a death sentence thanks to Haman. Now, I don't know if you, if you caught the implications of what happens next when she does this. At that second feast that she has, she finally tells the king. And when she tells the king everything, we're told that Xerxes leaves the chamber. He gets up and leaves the chamber in anger. Now, when Xerxes leaves the chamber in frustration, I want us to see that it's not just because he's surprised. It's not because he doesn't know what to do. You see, Xerxes leaves because he's been manipulated. He hadn't known his beloved queen was a Jew or that Mordecai, whom he's just celebrated for saving his life, was also a Jew. But at the end of the day, it's important we recognize this. King Xerxes had ultimately given his prime minister, Haman, permission to write the terrible edict that condemned the Jews, all of them, throughout the Persian Empire. Xerxes has indeed, much like at the beginning of the story, been the victim of yet another conspiracy. But this conspiracy has an ironic twist. He's been conspired against by his own law. The law that he controls, the law that he authors, has been turned on himself. The king has been bound by his own law, and in so doing, he signed the death sentence, the death warrant for his own wife. The challenge as he leaves is how, as the king, to deal with this situation without losing face. Because after all, it all ends with him. He's the king. But if you remember this story, and maybe you don't you, you, we, again, we miss it. The king, in the midst of his dilemma, has Haman solve the problem for him. You see, the moment that the king leaves and goes out of the chamber, Haman should have gotten up and left too. Because another very, very important part of Persian law was that no one was allowed to be alone in the harem with a woman except for the king. Haman should have left the chamber when Xerxes did, but let's be honest, let's go back and realize that Haman was kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in that moment. In the midst of that second dinner, it's Esther, Xerxes, and Mordecai. That's it. And Esther has revealed that death is coming for her and her people and Mordecai and Haman is responsible. And so Haman, in the midst of seeing the king get enraged, does he follow the king out who's furious at him? Does he go out with the king when the king's basically going to take his head off? Or does he wait until after the king leaves, leaves then, but then basically acts as though he's guilty as he's charged? So Haman, in in a moment, in a flash, does the only thing that he can think of doing, which is to fall on the bed before Esther and beg for his life because he knows he's done for. But the minute that he makes that choice not to leave and, in fact, to fall on the bed, Haman gives King Xerxes exactly what he's looking for. Because what Haman does in that moment by not leaving and by falling on the bed by the queen is actually such a huge affront, it's enough to condemn him to death. And so Xerxes can come back in and deal with Haman without any embarrassing reference to the law. Do you notice in the story that there's no mention given to the law? Haman is dealt with because of how he acts towards the queen. And so the story goes on, and this is where we left last week. Yes, Haman's been dealt with. Haman's gone, but what kind of sits there is the evil that he set in motion still has this momentum. Nothing has ultimately changed. It's the third month, there's nine months to go, and the genocide's gonna begin for the Jews. I mean, what I want you to see is that Xerxes, in the moment, basically ignores the real problem. He almost acts like it doesn't exist. If you pay attention in chapter eight, his anger seemingly has more to do with the affront to his honor than it has to do with the overall plot to annihilate a whole race of people because when all is said and done, he does nothing, says nothing about it. The king's decree orchestrated by Haman remains in effect. It's Esther who has to come again, and plead for the life of her people. And when she does plead again, if you go, if we were to go back and read in chapter 8, when she does plead again for her people, one way to read how Xerxes responds to her is kind of like this. Xerxes basically says, look, I took care of your enemy for scheming against your people. I've given you and your family all of his money and his estate. What more could you possibly want? The implication being, you and your uncle are safe with me, so leave well enough alone. What's going on here? Why doesn't Xerxes act like a king? You could miss it because it's only in one verse that comes up later. Why doesn't Xerxes do anything? Xerxes gives us the reason much later when he tells Esther that according to Persian custom, no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. So what I'm wanting you to see, the tension here, is in other words, what we confront today at the end of Esther's story is the power of the law. Xerxes' hands are so tied by the law of his own empire that if we continue, as you continue on in this story, his hands are so tied, the best solution that he can come up with is just to write another law, to write another law, a policy of self-defense, This new law grants the Jews the right to assemble and protect themselves. This this new law is, is basically trying to in some way counteract the old law because the old law gave the enemies of the Jews the right, the king's permission to destroy, kill, and plunder and annihilate the Jewish people. But now the Jews are given permission to do the same to any enemies who choose to attack them. Basically, they can legally protect themselves by killing those who attack them without any recourse. They're also given in this law the right to plunder their enemies. And just like the first law, this new law that gives the Jews the legal right to protect themselves is written out and hand-delivered to all 127 provinces throughout the Persian Empire, going from India to Ethiopia. Now, does that seem like a very satisfying conclusion to you? I mean, I, 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 I don't know, maybe for some of us it is, but I want us to sit here for a second because I think that What happens here is we come to the conclusion of Esther, we're ending where we started. We're observing the power and might of a king. Except now, at the end of the story, we witness the weakness of a king before the law. The law which must be fulfilled. The law which demands death. The only human solution, as I said, the best they can do, is to write another law to counteract the first one with equal force. And we're told that when the day finally comes... When the two laws meet together, we're told that the Jews only killed those who attacked them. Only the men. No women or children were harmed. We're also told that the Jews did not plunder, even though they had a legal right to do so. And this is all great. This is all, I mean, wow. It's framed in such a way as to say, look at, look at how great it turned out. But what I want us to see, beloved, if we read deeply, this new law is still like the first one. It's based on death. It's a law based on retribution. It's a law that basically, I can't think of putting it any other way, it's a law that basically sanctions a holy war. We're told in the book of Esther that the total number slain when the day comes is 75,000 people. 75,000 people. Now, when we think about the million or more that possibly could have been slain by the first law, we may say, well, you know, it's it's not bad. But it's, again, the lesser of two evils. It's the lesser of two evils. We, 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 we just kind of b- b- breeze by 75,000 die and, and maybe get, compared to the million or so that would have been killed, it is a, a, a better number. But tell that to one of the, the families of the 75,000. Tell that to one of the ones who lost someone that day. And what's disturbing, and and that's why I had John jump to the end of chapter 3, is the end of this just jumps, basically, the way this ends is everything went back to normal. There was a holy war, 75,000 people died. Everything went back to normal. Same old thing as before. It's really quick, you probably missed it. It's business as usual in the Persian Empire, and you know how you know that? Because King Xerxes raises taxes. (laughs) Everybody pays tribute to King Xerxes. Just another day in the empire. Beloved, we come full circle at the end of this story to see that the emperor has no clothes. That's what I want you to get. There was a promise given earlier in this story, and it's a promise that remains unfulfilled. Do you remember that promise? Do you remember when Esther risks her life, not once, but three times to come to the king? Three times the king promises her. He assures her three times he will give her whatever she desires. He even says half of his kingdom in a moment of hyperbole. I'll give you whatever you want. But what we come to see, that it almost kind of, the end seems to to gloss over, is that Esther has asked for something that ultimately not even the most powerful man in the world at that time can grant. The defeat of death. But it's not just Xerxes. And that's the broader point. It's not just Xerxes. Every king is imperfect. All the power and wealth of the world can't resolve the underlying tension that isn't just in the story of Esther, but that haunts all human life. And that unresolved tension that is in all of our lives is the inescapability of death. The dilemma that Mordecai, Esther, and yes, even Xerxes face is the greatest challenge, the greatest challenge we all face, the all-consuming power of death. Throughout this story, we've been confronted with the cause of our death, our sin, our rebellion, our independence from God. It's been most keenly witnessed in the pages of Esther when our pride rears its ugly head. But what we have not yet considered is the weight of the consequence of our brokenness, the threat of death itself. And I realize the minute I start writing a sermon like this, this is not one that packs the pews. Great. What's the sermon on? Death. Awesome. 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 But this is what we have to face. This is what we could just simply ignore as we finish Esther. But it sits there, the shadow of death. And I want you to think about it. I want you to think about how this speaks to us. Think about the fact that death is perhaps the only true equalizer among all of us. It's the universal equalizer. Death is the universal equalizer. It doesn't matter how much money you have doesn't matter how many achievements or titles you collect, doesn't matter how much influence or control you exercise over others, rich or poor, famous or infamous, powerful or powerless, death comes for us all. We can try to avoid death, we can ignore its presence, we can delay its arrival, or even attempt to legislate its impact through war and peace, but we cannot, any of us, escape its inevitability. Death is hands down without question the largest obstacle we face and that is why death is the biggest crusher of our hopes. Do you ever I mean we know this we don't think about it but how how everything changes when death comes calling in our lives. Isn't it true how everything changes? How our perspective, we all come this morning with a perspective on life, what we expect, how we process the past, how we're living in the present, how we see the future, how our perspective, let alone our aspirations, change when, God forbid, we go into that doctor's office for a regularly scheduled checkup and come out finding out we only have six months to live. How does our perspective change? it, it automatically shifts. The reality that death is the biggest obstacle that we face comes smacking us right in the gut when all of a sudden a life that is close to ours is suddenly taken from us in an instant. Someone we just sat next to today, someone we saw yesterday, and the word comes, some tragic accident, something, and they're gone. How angry are we? How, how saddened are we? How numb are we when that life that was right there in front of us is taken? We don't even know how to process it. But they that can't I just saw them. They had their whole life. You know we were just talking about next week. Death is the greatest enemy we face. The truth is death's shadow is so long that if we're really honest, We live most of our lives out of fear of dying. We try to live, each one of us, differently and similarly. We try to live outrunning something that we can't. And so deep down, our fear of death ultimately destroys our hope for the future. Why doesn't God do something bigger here? Why doesn't God, in the midst of this tension in Esther, in that moment when Xerxes says, You know what? I'm, I'm kind of, nothing I can do. You know, a law that I make cannot be changed. I mean, if I was writing this story, the story we would expect in the Bible is this is the moment, the great reveal where God would say, This is why I am the Lord. And God would miraculously intervene. Why doesn't God do something bigger here? More of a dramatic intervention. I mean, we see, we've talked about, we've celebrated God's providence in this story. God working in the midst of this story. We've seen and we've celebrated how the significance of human responsibility, how when we respond to that providence, what God can do. So why not the payoff? Why not the payoff here in the grand finale? Why not? I don't have an answer for you. We come back again to where we started, where God is oftentimes hard for us to see there, but hidden. And I can't give you a reason from the book of Esther as to why that is, but I can speculate. Maybe, maybe the reason why we don't have the big finish is because as exciting and as captivating as Esther's story is, and I know many of you have been grabbed by this story, it isn't the end of the story. Beloved, we need to remember there's a larger framework that bookends the story of Esther. This is more than just a tale about two groups at odds with each other. This is more than just an account of the miraculous salvation of a people. There's a reason why Haman's plot is doomed to failure before it even starts. There's a reason that, against all odds, through what on the surface appears to be a series of logic defying coincidences, an entire race of people survive and endure. And that reason, that larger framework surrounding this story that we need to keep in perspective, because otherwise we walk away and we think this is what life's all about. Because in many ways it does, that this is what, you know, God's at work and we don't always see him and we respond every so often. It's not enough. We need to realize that this is surrounded by something larger. And that larger framework is an ancient covenant that God our father made with Abraham long ago. When he said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. It's a promise of protection that surrounds this story that's based on a larger plan for the redemption of the world. A promise of protection that God repeats to Moses and to Joshua and to David when he says, I am your God. You are my people and you will become my light to the nations. What we see in Esther is that the deliverance of the Jewish people is rooted in the promise of a covenant God. What we see in Esther and what we're pointed beyond Esther to see is that this promise is one that we are heirs to now as followers of Christ. And it's a promise, based upon how Esther ends, that we need to capture the urgency of waiting and needing God to keep. We need God to keep this bigger promise Because the truth is, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is stories like Esther force us beyond this story, our story, to confront the reality of our lives apart from God's intervention. If we truly understand the significance of providence, we realize that the Lord working behind the scenes is awesome. It's an incredible thing to realize that God's at work behind the scenes. And it's great, it's fantastic to notice and to celebrate and to testify that God is continually nudging and guiding us along. But again, it's not enough. If we truly understand providence, when we come to the end of Esther, we realize that what we see in Esther in terms of providence is not enough. We need God to step in directly. We need the Lord to save us. Back in the days of Esther, the the times of the absolute monarchy... A king like Xerxes was often presented and perceived like a god who could do no wrong. This is part of why Xerxes has such a dilemma when Esther gives her reveal, because gods don't mess up. And we can look back at Xerxes and just see him in isolation, but what I want us to see and why I keep singling him out at the end here is that our political systems may be different, but we often hold our leaders and our governments today to similar standards. We expect them to be messiahs. We expect them to save us. And we get very upset when they don't deliver. But what we need to see here in Esther through Xerxes, who represents far more than this story, is that every earthly king, every president, every government that has or will ever come along inevitably lets us down because despite what we believe about them or despite what they keep trying to tell us, they're not God. They are bound by the same law that we all are, the law that demands death, the law that we inscribe into our lives every time we depend upon our own humanity to save us. Because left on our own, and this is part of what we see in Esther that also reflects our life, left on our own, we can't imagine a solution, you and I, that goes beyond death, We can't imagine a solution that goes beyond, outside the brokenness of this world. We can't imagine something that isn't tainted or corrupt, something that doesn't leave blood on our hands. We're so mired in death in our own day, like Xerxes, that our best solution to it as a problem is to figure out more efficient or less offensive ways to live in the midst of it. And we're very good at it. Beloved, every king promises what he cannot deliver. That's what I want to leave us with at Esther. Every king promises what he cannot deliver except one. To me, there's something telling about the fact that we always seem to want our rulers and our governments to be godlike. Because I think, I don't care where you are in this, that means that deep down, the truth is we know that only God can save us. And he does in Jesus Christ. I want us, as we close out Esther, to think about Jesus in a way that perhaps we've never thought about or not spent enough time thinking about. Jesus is the only king who delivers on what he promises. Jesus is the only king who's ever carried the mantle of perfection, an unblemished track record of not falling into temptation or suffering from ignorance. Again, think about it. All other kings, all other rulers, how do they keep the peace? They keep the peace by blaming someone else. They keep the peace by finding a scapegoat, some group to pin everything on, someone or something else to take the fall for the imperfections and inefficiency of the empire. Do we not see this in our own nation? I don't care what political party you are. Whatever political party you are, it's the other political party's fault. Whoever your representative, the person of choice, it's the other guy's fault. It's the other gal's fault. We are ripe with we make peace by saying, oh, not my fault, that's your fault. But our king, our Jesus, doesn't look for someone else to punish. Our king, our Jesus, takes the punishment upon himself. Our king becomes the scapegoat. Our king takes the blame. Our king lets us pin everything on him on the cross. All other kings, all other rulers, you know how they keep the kingdom running? They demand tribute. They ask you to pay taxes because that's what makes the kingdom go. But our king, our Jesus, is different. Our king, our Jesus, pays the wages of sin in order to build his kingdom on a new economy. Based not on what we owe, based not on deficits or fiscal cliffs, but based upon what we've been given to share with others. All other kings that we encounter, all other rulers, they promise justice and they bring justice based on retribution. We we see it in Esther and it's true in our own day. How do our rulers bring justice? They right the wrongs of this world through lesser evils, sanctioning torture, declaring war, and sentencing to death. But our king Our Jesus is different. Our king, our Jesus, suffers the vengeance of evil so that the endless arguing, fighting, and killing over making things even, over making things fair and balanced is put to rest. Isn't it a funny thing? We start out as children, and for most of us, we start out as children arguing about what's not fair, what's not balanced. He touched me first. He took that from me. That's not, he got more than I got. And we don't talk the same way, but our arguments are the same as adults. And Jesus comes in the midst of, of, of our way, the only way we make justice, make things fair and balanced, is basically for someone else to lose and says, no, no, I'm going to become the loser. I'm going to lose. So that this is done. You know, I know we still have wars in our time and it's a very, very tragic thing. But if we truly understood Our King, our Jesus, true holy war in human history should be no more. It is no more because our King, our Jesus, has fought its last episode on the cross. On the cross, Jesus fulfilled the law that demands death in order to rewrite it. And by the blood of his sacrifice, he signed a new law, a higher law into being, the law of grace. And beloved, what we celebrate, what draws us here is that, that this law of grace is the more powerful law. Because this law is the only law that provides the power by which we can love our enemies. This law is the only law that provides the power by which we can forgive others as we have been forgiven. And when Jesus bursts from the tomb, that promise of grace becomes the law of the land because death's long-standing victory is ended. The law of grace is the most powerful law because it's eternal. It's eternal. It's born of the Holy Spirit, and it's based on truth and love, and therefore it cannot be overruled. I know, that I can see it some of you are glazing over. I'm up here right now. Let me bring this down to earth for you. Let me bring it down to how you live every single day and how you interact with people. Let me bring it down to why this matters so much. We live more and more in a world that asks, why do we need Jesus? More and more people know plenty or think they know and ask, why do we need Jesus? When they look to other rulers, other answers, why Jesus, why do we need Jesus? And the challenge is, is that most of us, because we've grown up with it, because this is the limit of what we understand this incredible story to be, our response when the world says, why do we need Jesus, is to say, well, we need Jesus to forgive our sins. That's it. And I want to say amen, because absolutely, we need Jesus to forgive our sins. But beloved, while that is true, what we're missing, what we're not saying, what we're not living is what is more important, what is even more relevant is that we need Jesus to conquer the law of death. We live in a world where people will debate you if sin even exists. They'll debate you what sin is. But I don't care who you are, no one can debate the inevitability of death. It's the equal equalizer, universal. And our gospel proclaims more than just the forgiveness of sins. It proclaims the defeat of of death. It's kind of like this. Yes, Jesus forgives our sins. And when we understand that Jesus forgives our sins on the cross, we experience grace. That experience of grace is that release of all that guilt and shame in our lives. When we understand that God has forgiven our sins, all of that guilt and shame that we've had put on us or we've put on ourselves is released from us. We feel the release of that burden because Jesus takes all that that's been put on us and puts it on himself on the cross. And that is a powerful, transformative moment when you've experienced freedom from that guilt and shame. But the problem is, for many of us as Christians, that's where we stop. This is what I alluded to last week. We stop and all of a sudden we feel so much lighter and free that we think that all it's about is what we've been saved from. And so in the midst of this newfound freedom, we become strangely, ironically narcissistic. When the reality is that burden has been removed from us, we've been saved from that guilt, from that shame, in order to be saved for. And that's the other side, the more, I would argue, more important side. Paul argues it, is that ultimately we haven't just been freed from sin, but we've been freed for declaring the victory over death. In our lives, you can experience grace by knowing you're forgiven. But I'm going to ask you something, because I encounter this more and more. We've all experienced grace. We've received it. But when all of a sudden we hear God's challenge to live out of grace, that's where it gets hard, doesn't it? We love grace. We love grace. We love talking about it. We love uh, talking about it. its implications. But when it actually comes down to living gracefully, how many of us find that easy? We don't find it easy, do we? It's this odd thing. We proclaim grace, but it's really t- tough to live by grace. Do you know why that is? The reason why that is is because ultimately we have not embraced Jesus' victory over death. Because it's Jesus' conquering of death that empowers us to practice grace, to live by grace. You know why? Because if you don't understand Jesus' victory over death, you can be free of the burden of your guilt and your shame, but you're still looking over your shoulder. You're still looking over your shoulder out of fear. Fear of the death that comes for us all. But, beloved, if we understand that we've not just had a burden of guilt and shame removed from us, but that death, our greatest challenge, has been defeated. We don't live looking over our shoulder anymore. We don't live by fear anymore. There's a story that was told to me once about a surgeon who went out with another associate of his, a non-Christian, to visit an old man who was living in a trailer by himself and who was just in, in terrible condition. This doctor, on the way there, told his associate that he knew that this man wasn't going to live much longer because his body was riddled with cancer. I mean, it was all over his body, knots and knobs of it breaking out on his scalp. His tissues were riddled with disease. The two doctors, as they came to this trailer, they found this man asleep, and so they woke him up. And as they woke him up, they asked him, how's it going? And the old man looked up at them, and with a smile, he said, all is well. We checked him out and talked to him for a bit, as you might expect, and then they left. And as they left the trailer, the non-Christian associate said to the other doctor, "What? what does he mean, all is well? How could he say that? Doesn't he know he's dying with cancer? Doesn't he know there's no hope for him at all? To which the other doctor said, yeah, he knows, but he's not afraid. You see, he does have hope, a hope that's greater than death. His hope is in the love of Jesus Christ. And then this doctor went on to share with his associate the gospel. The law of grace that overrules the law of death. Beloved, it's time for us to face death too. Not try to fight back because we can't defend ourselves. We need to face our death. Can I say to you as a pastor, can I confess to you what you probably might expect? On the one hand... There is nothing more incredible, more gratifying in the vocation that I have than when I am asked to minister to a family that has lost someone that are people of faith. People who understand Jesus' victory over death and in the context of of a loss have a cause for celebration that their mourning truly turns into dancing. It is is a, a worship experience that if you have not had someday, perhaps you will. But on the flip side, It is so hard, so hard. There are times when I don't want to be a pastor, when I'm asked to officiate a service with a family that doesn't have anything. That the loss is just a loss, that death wins. Death is all there is. It's so hard. But But the thing I want to point you to is that is what's in the middle, and this is what's disturbing me because this is becoming more the norm for me as a pastor. Because, I mean, on the one hand, as much as it's painful, I can understand the family that confronts death that doesn't have anything, how difficult that is. They don't, they don't have resources. They, have, they don't believe. They don't, death is it. So I don't like being in that space. I try to minister, but I get it. What I'm encountering more and more, and this is where I'm going with this, is when I engage in being asked to be a part of services for people who've lost a loved one, for people who are Christian, And yet, they can't process the death that's in front of them. What I'm getting at is, there are too many of us in the church who pay lip service, again, to this gospel. Who say, we believe that Jesus has forgiven our sins, but none of us are willing to face our death to talk about it. And beloved, we of all people should be able to do that. The time for us to encounter the truth of the gospel is not in the moment reacting when someone finally passes from this life into the next. It's before. And yet we're not. I can't tell you how many Christians I encounter who it's it's like all of a sudden this defining moment, and that's not the time for it. Do I really believe this? Because Jesus didn't... (laughs) does not give us this gift, this victory, so that we can have it in the last moment. It's a gift in the last moment if we embrace it, but it's not meant for the last moment. It's a gift that's meant to transform us and make us stronger now. We need to face our death. We need to face our death, and the good news is the death that we face thanks to to Jesus is not the death we deserve. It's not the death that we fear. It's the death that comes from being under a new law. It's the death of our old allegiances. It's the death of our pride and our independence. We have to die to something lesser to experience something greater. We need to follow Jesus not only as he carries the cross, the weight and burden of our sin, but we actually need to keep following him as he does the heavy lifting as he's placed on that cross and confronts our greatest enemy, where ultimately our sin leads all of us, death. We need to face our death in Jesus so that we can truly live through Christ. Because Jesus is the one king, the only king, who can deliver on the promise of a new law, a law written in blood that offers a way through death, a law that offers grace. Which law are you living under? Which law are you living under today? Are you living under a law that brings fear? Is that what your life is built on? Are you living under a law that brings life? in which fear has no hold over you? What kind of king are we looking for for our salvation? Let's be honest. What kind of king are we looking for for our salvation? Are we still looking to the ones who can only deal and trade in death? Or are we looking to the only one who embraces death, defeats it, so we might live under grace? Beloved, we've got to live out of the promise of this new law, the promise of grace. And you want to know the most, the most telling, identifying marker if we're living out of the promise of this new law, out of the promise of grace? The most telling marker is if we're living that way, we will not live conservatively. We will not live conservatively. We will live with an eternal perspective. I grew up, I remember the first time I heard it, I thought it was the coolest thing. This Latin expression, you all know it, carpe diem. Right? Carpe diem means seize the day i thought that was the coolest thing and and it's out there but if you really think about this really cool expression what lies behind it is carpe diem seize the day because death is just around the corner and the translation of that is you go you know what because if we say carpe diem we we live in the extreme man we're living life to the extreme and that means bucket lists that means self-indulgence that means maxing out the opportunities for ourselves and on one level, that sounds awesome, but do you see the problem with that philosophy? Because fundamentally, we're not supposed to seize the day for ourselves, we're seizing the day still out of our fear. The Christian response, the Christian way to say carpe diem is to say, yes, seize the day, but seize the day not because death is just around the corner. The Christian says seize the day not because it may be your last. The Christian says seize the day because every day is building on the foundation of an everlasting life. That is a huge difference. Are you seizing the day because today might be your last Are you living in fear or are you seizing the day because you recognize every single day is part of the foundation of an everlasting life, a life that goes with you? The Christian version of carpe diem changes what living to the extreme means. By all means, let's live to the extreme. If you're a Christian, I am telling you, you should be living to the extreme. Stop being conservative. But if you're a Christian and you're in Christ, living to the extreme is not about bucket lists and indulging yourself. Living to the extreme as a Christian means reckless generosity, boundless compassion, maxing out the opportunities not to serve yourself but to love and serve others. When you're not looking over your shoulder in fear, you can do all things in faith and in Christ. There is nothing that's impossible for you. There's nowhere you can't go, nothing you can't do because the greatest obstacle that we face has been defeated. Do we believe that? (laughs) Will we live that way? The most influential man in the world, the the king of one of history's greatest empires, don't miss this, made a promise that he couldn't deliver on. Despite all his power, all his authority, he was still subject to the law just like everyone else. You are not subject to that law. You do not have the power and authority that he had, but you have a greater power and authority that is within you. And we are surrounded by rulers before and after Xerxes who are bound, they believe, by the same limits, unable to overrule the reign of death. But beloved, we are not bound. And we need rulers, we need leaders who point us to that truth, to that reality. Because here's the deal. Every story, not just Esther, every story that we hear, every story in terms of our life is open-ended. There is no satisfying conclusion to any story. There is no happily ever after until a new kingdom comes. The good news, as we close the book, as we turn the last page on the story of Esther, is that we find ourselves beautifully, providentially led right into the story of Lent. The story of another king. A different kind of king. The story of a king who delivered on the covenant he made long ago with his creation. A king who, despite all his power and authority, chose to subject himself to a law that humanity could not fulfill. A king in the person of Jesus Christ who bound himself to the rule of sin and death in this world in order to fulfill the promise of a new law, one of grace. I should have waited till now. You better be here on Ash Wednesday. <laughs> you better be here. If you mean what you say, and I mean it, and if you mean it, we need to turn our eyes towards Jesus. As we leave the Persian Empire behind and enter into the greater kingdom of God this Lenten season. What awaits us is not death. We go through death. What awaits us is life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.